Amen. Please go ahead and turn back in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we have been working through the book of 1 Corinthians now for off and on for a while, and finally we can say we're here. We're to chapter 13. And this chapter, really verses 4 through 7 of this passage, is one of the more well-known passages of Scripture. Verses 4 through 7 are the kind of verses you'll find in a poster, uh, inside someone's front door on the wall, uh, maybe on a coffee mug or something like that, and, uh, maybe read at a wedding, and so forth, and rightly so. Uh, the passage can stand alone and, and rightly redirect and correct the way we are thinking and acting in so many different situations, in our relationships. I've said in the last few weeks that this this passage... Uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, serves as the climax of sorts, the main solution to all the problems that are addressed in this letter to the church at Corinth. It also serves as the center of the argument Paul is making concerning spiritual gifts, relationships, and service order in the church. In fact, even in this chapter, it appears that verses 4 through 7 are sitting in the center kind of wedged into this logical argument that Paul is making from verses 1 to 3 and then verses 8 to 12. We could even say uh, that this passage on love centers or anchors down uh, chapters 12, 13, and 14. In, in Hebrew literature, this kind of thing is called a chiasm. You don't have to remember that word. It just It just means basically like a sandwich. You don't call a you don't call a, a ham and cheese sandwich a, a bread sandwich. The good stuff's in the middle, right? The important stuff is in the middle. And the author puts it there to make it jump out, to jump off the page for the reader in order to make sure you see it, that we see it and that we understand that that's the main point. So with that being said, the the way I want to work through this text is to go ahead and, and follow the logical argument first. We'll first see how Paul is carrying this logic of his teaching out through, out of chapter 12, uh, through chapter 13, and then heading into 14. And then, once we see where we're headed as far as the spiritual gifts go and the way that should happen, then we'll jump back into this passage that defines for us exactly what love is. Consider how Christ has exemplified it, embodied it, and then seek to grow in becoming more like him, more like Christ, through our obedience to the greatest commandments, loving God and loving our neighbor. And I'll just say this to you, this was an introduction for two different sermons, okay? Uh, to do all of that today, it wasn't going to happen I'll tell you the rest of the sermon is in here and we're not getting there today, okay? Uh, so all that great stuff I just told you, you're going to have to wait for it, okay? Um, this is one of those passages that you love to preach and also a passage that's, that's very hard to preach because you never feel like you can do it justice. Um, so we're going to do the logical argument part, the first and the last part of chapter 13 today, and then next week we'll focus in on verses 4 through 7. So, back in chapter 12, the Apostle Paul reminded the church that the Holy Spirit gave each individual church member their gifts to serve one another as a body. That if they were doing things as they had done before in their pagan worship, 
or as the pagans conducted themselves, then they were not exercising their gifts at all. They might call them gifts, but if they were doing those things, they were not exercising their gifts at all. Remember, spiritual gifts are given by the sovereign will of God to be used by the people of God to benefit the entire family of God, to build up the church, uh, to reach the lost with the gospel message. But the Corinthian believers uh, seemed to have valued the flashy, the shiny, the showy gifts, uh, gifts that would make them look impressive and, and get a bunch of followers on social media if they'd had such a thing back then. And their desire for the experience of it, the experience, the personal pleasure of the gifting, it drove them to pursue gifts that Paul has begun to warn them. Now, the way you're thinking about that is no gift at all. As we saw in chapter 12, we'll see again in chapter 13, and we'll definitely see in chapter 14, Paul has and will continue to compare in contrast, for example, a right use of tongues or languages, and a wrong practice of speaking in tongues. There was a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it, and he addresses that. But instead of pursuing the flash, instead of pursuing personal, uh, selfishly motivated pleasure in this idea of gifting, Paul encourages the church to rather desire gifts that help them serve more people. To give themselves sacrificially for the benefit of others. Gifts like helps. The gift of helps. Coming alongside of others and taking some of the load off of them on me in order to help free them up for more ministry. Uh, We read last week about a guy named Epaphroditus who exercised this gift uh, in Philippians chapter 2. And a gift like administration or leadership. I remember Christ told the disciples that in their leadership, the greatest among them would be the servant of all. The servant of all. So uh, the greater is not the more miraculous or the more miracles or the more uh, jaw-dropping in the world's eyes. You don't want the most miracles. You want the most service. The most service. And Paul called these kinds of gifts the higher gifts. Then we see in the end of chapter 12, Paul writes, and I will still show you a more excellent way. So there was, there was this idea, a low view of gifts, which were actually the higher gifts. And Paul says, and yet there's even more of an excellent way to be thinking about these things. There's something even better than desiring the higher gifts of service because the gifts are not the end-all be-all. They're just the tools. The gifts are not the end. They are simply the means through which God has enabled us to love one another. And so with that, let's pick up in chapter 13, verse 1. It says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
Now, first of all, we see again this idea of the two kinds of tongues going on, two kinds of languages, and that word does mean languages, okay? Uh, one, a language of men, it says here, mankind. Those are languages that mankind can understand, like at Pentecost. And the other was being called here the language of angels, implying that people could not understand it, but maybe the angels can. Interestingly, if it says later, I'm giving a little bit of the future of this message away, this passage, but remember it says that tongues will cease. If the languages of angels are the languages spoken in heaven, then why would they cease? Wouldn't they be spoken forever and by all of us when we would get there? That doesn't make sense, okay? In, in Corinth, in their pagan idolatrous worship, they had the practice of ecstatic utterances, and they would call those the languages of the gods. And it seems quite apparent that that practice got absorbed into this desire for these special, um, amazing to see and watch kinds of gifts, uh, but changed maybe to this idea of the language of angels. This is another piece of these chapters that, that adds up to the idea of a right way and a wrong way of speaking in tongues or languages. And again, we're going to get into that more uh, fully deeper in chapter 14. But the big picture as it relates to this passage, in this context, whether you're speaking tongues in an unintelligible way or even in an intelligible way, a way that can be understood, if you're doing it without love, you sound like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So amazingly, there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. And Paul says, even if you're doing it the right way, if you're doing it without love, you sound like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And those are not great adjectives or great comparisons in this context. Not something you want to hear, right? Uh, not desirous noises. If you're if you were singing a song with your friends on the radio and you're going down the street and they turn it off and they go, man, you just got to stop. I can't handle hearing you sing. You sound like a clanging cymbal. You're all off. You're like, oh, well, you know, my mom always said I was a great singer, right? That's what we think about, maybe. It's not what we want to hear. And the Greek for noisy gong even refers to a brass tool or an instrument that made, it was made to amplify sound. So this noisy gong was a tool that was made to make whatever sound was coming out louder, louder. So when we say something wrong, once we realize we're wrong, we kind of we kind of hope that people didn't hear it, right? Minimize the damage. <laughs> Whoops, that stunk. I don't want anybody to know I did that. But what Paul's referring to here makes it louder. When we pursue these kinds of gifts uh, for selfish reason, it gets amplified. The wrong use of it is only amplified, and it sounds like a clanging of a cymbal. It makes us, makes people want to cover our ears and run away. And we know this from experience. Those kinds of things can draw people to religion, can draw people to a perhaps enjoyable form of religiosity, but will it point them to Christ in truth? Will it draw them to repentance and faith? Verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers, so verse 1 was tongues, verse 2, if I have prophetic powers, I can proclaim the word of the Lord. If I have understanding of all mysteries and all 
knowledge. Uh, mysteries revealed in the New Testament would be like uh, Old Testament stuff that we didn't quite understand what it was, and now we know what it is. So I might say, you know, hey, I, I know all the, the, the suffering servant in Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53. That's speaking of Jesus. I know that Isaiah 700 years before Christ came was speaking of the Messiah's substitutionary atonement. Ooh. Imagine being the guy or the gal in the church at Corinth, reading the book of Isaiah. Nobody said anything about it as far as you know. You're like, guess what I figured out? (laughs) I am awesome. Let me teach you what I know. That kind of an attitude. Does that make sense? It's kind of like when we learn those things, we think, oh, that's amazing. But that kind of an attitude about it, we think, "Uh, I'll, I'll read it myself, thanks, right? It says then, and if I have all faith... So as to remove mountains. Remember, Paul's not giving great examples here. This is, this is the person that says, I have so much faith. <laughs> I have so much faith. When I pray, stuff happens. When you pray, you know, stuff might happen. But when I pray, mountains are moved. Paul says, if you got all that going for you, which you don't, but have not love, he says, I'm nothing. Nothing. Realize prophecy is a gift to be used to share with people what the Lord has declared. Forth telling the word of the Lord. Who should get the glory for that? Who came up with the truth proclaimed? God, the Lord. Who sovereignly designed and orchestrated the covenant of grace and the purchase of it through the blood of Christ brought about the birth of the Son of God, fulfilling Scripture that He wrote, providing for our salvation. God did all of that. Christ is the one who died for our salvation. Learning of the mysteries of the Old Testament, seeing them fulfilled in the New, shouldn't make us think highly of ourselves. It ought to make us think highly of God. And third, Jesus said, faith as small as a mustard seed is what can move mountains. Do the impossible. You know, things like bringing a person who is dead in their trespasses and sins to eternal life. That's the greatest miracle of all. It's not about how much faith you have. It's about who your faith is in. Right? You see, when we, when we look at things like prophecy and, and knowledge and faith and, and we make those things all about us, and what we can get, and what we can do, well then where does all the glory go? And, and, and how do we start to manipulate the doctrines? How do we manipulate the gifts? When we remove love, and we think too highly of ourselves, the very gifts themselves take on a different nature. They cease to be the things that God is giving They have a corrupted nature, a nature that is contrary to God's designs. When gifts become a reason for you to brag and for you to show off or for me to tell stories of my amazing exercise of these things, uh, they are no longer accomplishing what they were designed to do. Furthermore, we could argue that since no one has all understanding, right, Okay, no one has all understanding of the mysteries of the Old Testament to the New. Or all knowledge. Have you learned things reading in Scripture that you didn't realize were there before? Like, man, I've read my Bible my whole life and I'm still learning things. Are we all there? 
and we will all be there. No one has all faith. We're all in a process of growing, aren't we? Since none of us have any of those things in the all kind of a way, not only is the one who lacks love nothing, but perhaps worse than nothing. Because Paul said, if you have all of these things and don't have love, then it's nothing. But none of us even have all. We have less than all. So, not just of no significance, our wrongdoing and selfish exercise of what we want these gifts to be is not just of no significance. It is not of no influence. Instead, it's a negative one. We hurt people and feel spiritual about it. Yuck. Right? We can be hurting people and feel spiritual about it. And that sounds like the exact opposite of the gospel, doesn't it? Christ took our suffering on himself to love us. And he loved us in doing that. Where, where what the Corinthians were doing, what we can do sometimes if we get selfish about these things, we can take things from others for ourselves and give suffering to them. That's the opposite of the gospel, isn't it? Right? Um, the wrong that we do, selfishly motivated, is not without consequences. I remember when one suffers in the body, we all suffer. And, and we can say this this way too. The right that we do, when we follow Christ and we love one another, it is not without consequence. Praise God. And when one rejoices in the body, we all can rejoice together. Verse 3. If I give away all I have, <laughs> and if I deliver up my body to be burned, well, now we're talking about different things. Good. Okay, well, hold on. But have not love, I gain nothing. Or we say, it counts for nothing. Wait a minute, we say. Uh, those sound like impossible things to mess up. How can you do that selfishly for crying out loud? Giving away all I have? Delivering up our bodies? That doesn't quite go with the prosperity gospel, that's for sure. How can you do those things selfishly? And sadly, we can go there. We sure can. And, and there's two ways that we can do these things without love. Uh, one of them is legalism. Legalism. Uh, writing our own law. Writing our own standards of right and wrong. Either I'm doing these things because I think it's going to earn me points to get into heaven. I've accomplished my own righteousness. Meaning, uh, maybe if I give away all my money, then I'll be righteous enough and I'll please God and I'll get in. Or, uh, surely if I'm willing to die a martyr's death, God would not be able to reject me. How could you reject somebody who's dying a martyr's death? This has to earn me heaven. So that's, that's legalism. Taking God's offer of salvation through the finished work of Christ, through his shed blood, and then saying, oh, no, I've got another way. I have another strategy to earn my own interest in the kingdom. I'm good enough. I don't need Jesus. Thank you very much. I'm going to write my own law. That's legalism. Or uh, the other way, instead of writing a new law, we can try to be our own judge. 
Meaning, if I do something wrong, and I know it's wrong, I get to decide what price I should pay to absolve it, to make it go away. I decide how bad my sin is. I decide what price I have to pay. And then when I stand before God, we should all be square. We should be all square. Because I've already dealt with everything. I've already dealt with it. We're good here. But then why did Jesus die? If we can look at our sin and say, this was so bad and these things are so good and so I'll do these things and it'll undo my bad, then why did Jesus have to die? And the answer is he wouldn't have to if that's how that worked. So we can give away all we have Oh, and or die what appears to be a martyr's death. And I'm saying there appears to be a martyr's death because if I'm dying in order to absolve my own sin or to earn righteousness, it isn't a martyr's death. And, and to be motivated to do those things by a desire, by that desire to earn our way into heaven or to absolve or to free ourselves from our guilt. Imagine the Apostle Paul ready to be beheaded in Rome Thinking in his head, oh, now, now God can't get me for, for wanting to get Stephen stoned. That's off my back now. Whew. That's not how that works, is it? But we can do that, can't we? We can write our own rules or decide our own system of removing our guilt and to the point of giving up all our possessions, to the point even of being willing to die. Martin Luther is a great example. Martin Luther, on his way home one evening, a terrible storm came up, lightning was coming down, and you know those stories where somebody feels like they're near a death, uh, near death, and they say, God, if you save me from this, I'll do whatever, I'll do this, I'll do that, and they make these vows, right? Martin Luther had that moment and said, God, if you allow me to live through this, I will become a monk. And he lived, and he became a monk. That's what he did. And he gave up everything he had. And he put himself through things like sleep deprivation. He refused to allow himself to sleep in order to, uh, in order to purge sin out of his heart, in order to make himself be and feel holier. He, he put himself through exposure to cold to take his sin away. He even whipped himself. If you're reading in the history books, you'll see it'll be termed self-flagellation. And if he had a sinful thought or, or a sinful action, a desire that he had, he, he would take that whip and whip himself to take away the sin. Imagine that life. And Martin Luther in his own testimony said, I came to hate God. Hate God. And that makes sense when we consider what we might feel like we have to go through if we see our sin for what it is. Martin Luther did those things over and over and over again until one day when he was reading the Bible, pause for effect, when he was reading the Bible, he read the words in Romans 1, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And he never did that stuff to himself again. Praise God. God is the lawgiver. God is the judge. And Christ paid the price for all our sin. 
it is finished. Christ did that. So, to sum up these verses, uh, no matter how amazing I might think I am, or my giftings might be, no matter how powerful my giftings might appear to be, and no matter how far I'm willing to go to prove myself or to take away my guilt, even if I make myself suffer, if I'm doing those things without love, it counts for nothing. Nothing. There's nothing we could ever do that's going to outshine the cross. Nothing. God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Remember, it wasn't a thing where God said, ooh, that person is awesome. I need to have them on my team. What is it going to take for me to convince them? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, purchased us. And we'd say, go and do likewise. Now, skip ahead. Sorry to skip some verses. We're going to get them next week. Skip ahead to verse 8. Verse 8. We just considered the love of God for us, and we see in verse 8 these words, love never ends. Love never ends. Different translations might say love never fails. Uh, because the word in the Greek means to fall in or to collapse. Uh, the idea is like a flower that, that loses its petals as it dies and the wind can just come and, and blow it away. Uh, so the idea of time is what Paul's referring to. Things beating down, beating down, beating down, and love never fails. Love never ends. When everything else fails, when everything else falls away, love will remain. So the idea here is not a love wins or a love conquers or love overpowers, love beats things down until they go into submission. Not that kind of an idea. Simply this. No matter what's thrown at it, no matter how long it's thrown at it, no matter how much time passes by, when everything else would have eroded, everything else would have crumbled under the pressure, when everything else would have been blown away in the wind, love remains. And of course it would, because God is love. And as long as God exists, love remains. As for prophecies, verse 8, continuing, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Notice both prophecies, the fourth telling of the word of God, and and knowledge, which from the context of this chapter, we understand this is the knowledge, learning of the mysteries, uh, things that we can learn and find the revelation of God's word. So so forth telling, the proclaiming, and the learning of God's word. It says here, both of these things will pass away. And the way that's written in the Greek is such that the prophecies and knowledge are having something done to them. They are done away with reduced to inactivity as a result of something else. And we'll see that what that something else is in verse 10. But the tongues, these languages, it doesn't say they pass away. It says they cease, which simply means they stop. They just stop. Not because something was done to them, not because they decided to of their own volition. They just stop. 
They accomplish what they're designed to do, and, and they, they stop. Uh, what's very interesting to me, and as I started this passage, and if it isn't to you, I apologize in advance, but tongues are not included in verses 9 and 10 at all. They're not conclu- included in this contingency, if this, then that. Let's read those, then it'll make sense. Verses 9 and 10. For we know, there's knowledge, in part, and we prophesy, there's that word, in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial, the stuff that's in part, will pass away. So did you notice what was missing? Tongues, languages. Have you ever, have you ever heard someone say that these verses, the idea of the perfect coming, is the reason why tongues are no longer for today? And the idea there, the perfect means when scripture's completed, then tongues are going to cease. But tongues aren't a part of these verses. Prophecy and knowledge are a part of these verses. And and the completion of scripture did not end our pursuit of knowledge. Or end the task of prophesying or preaching. Scripture doesn't end those things. Scripture informs those things and makes them possible. So all of this adds up to a couple conclusions. Number one, we'll say it this way, because we could go, ah, if that's the case, then, then tongues haven't ceased. We'll say, well, now hold on. What all it means is that tongues didn't even need the completion of Scripture to cease. Tongues were not relying on the completion or the lack of completion of scriptures to cease. They fulfilled their function and stopped. And then two, we can make this conclusion, the perfect has not yet come. I think that'll be clear to us here as we continue reading these verses. So with those two things being said, preachers need to keep preaching. And teachers need to keep teaching. Learners, all of us learners, we need to keep learning and growing in knowledge. There's more knowledge to be had. Paul reiterates this need for learning and the room we have to grow in our knowledge many times in Scripture. Back in chapter 8, he said, If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. In Philippians 3, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. In Romans 11, oh the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. The more we learn about God, the more we realize there's more to learn about God. The deeper we dig into the riches and the treasures of the truth of God, the more we realize the deeper we have to dig. And the more we find, we continually, consistently find Him to be inscrutable. And we are more amazed and more amazed and more delighted. We say, man, I I just don't find it very interesting. You haven't dug very deep yet then. Keep digging. Keep digging. Colossians 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures, treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I tell you, this week, just been convicted in these things. My goodness, how much information is thrown at us all the time. 
Do you believe that the truth that we find in God's word about himself is better and richer and fuller and more life-giving and more valuable than anything you're going to see on social media or on Fox News or on CNN or on any other newspaper, any other news website, period, 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 exclamation point. What is of value? And yet, I'm sure if I logged my time this week, my actions would probably say otherwise. God help us. God help us. Our world doesn't need more of the same kind of news stuff. Our world needs more Jesus. And we're the ones who are supposed to be telling them. God help us to dig into and reach the plums and and learn and grow and delight in Jesus. Peter says it this way, 2 Peter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. God did that. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And the difference between where we are now, where we all are now, different varying levels of maturity and growth in Christ, the difference between where we are now and that perfect glory and excellence which none of us have achieved, amen, sets up what Paul continues to say in verse 11. 1 Corinthians thirteen eleven. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Uh, this week, we went and visited my parents, and I grew up in that house. My parents still live in the house that, that we moved to uh, when I was in kindergarten or before kindergarten. And the elementary school that I went to still stands and is still being used, and it's just down the block from where I grew up. And so uh, this week down there, went for a walk, and I, I walked down the street see, you know, uncles, old uncles and aunts' houses and stuff like that who lived in the neighborhood and, and walked down and walked past the elementary school that I went to many, many years ago. And, and I walked past the school and I even went across the, that street there and went into the neighborhood where my grandfather used to live. And he hasn't lived there since I was a little boy. And I walked through that neighborhood trying to remember which house was his house. You know what I mean? It's been long enough. I'm like, is it that one? I don't think it's that one. Maybe it's this one. And then I finally figured it out. And I got to the street, and I saw the house, and there's a park at the end of the street. And man, I remember that park being so far away. You know what I'm talking about? But it was like right there, right there. Ten strides maybe, right? It was right there. Why? Why is it like that? And I had to think as I was walking past, I was looking and trying to decide, is this the house or not? I realized I had to look at it, the small things. What is this, how is this driveway? Because I remember once you get there and you start, things start flooding back and, well, the driveway was kind of like this. You know, 4th of July fireworks in the driveway and you're, when you're little, you see this, don't you? You see this. And you're thinking about so many things that walk to the end of the street to the park seemed to take forever. And when you grow up, you start seeing the bigger picture of things. Right? That's how we are as children. We see little things. We, our peripheral vision is pretty small. As we grow, it expands. 
and we see more in a bigger picture. This is Paul, Paul saying here. Here's the illustration. All of us are serving and being served by others in the areas of, of preaching, in the areas of teaching. We're all growing and learning. We're gaining knowledge. We're seeing growth. We're seeing change. We're seeing maturation, maturity happening in our lives and other people's lives. But how many of us have matured past tense? None of us. We are all still in child mode compared to what's to come. Compared to what's to come. There's always, in this life, there's always more knowledge we can gain. There's always more of the glory of God to behold. There's always more treasure to dig up from God's word until the perfect comes. Which reminds us, what was that all about? What is the perfect? We've already come to the conclusion that it's not scripture itself. Uh, some say that it's the church victorious, meaning when the church is complete and holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, sanctified. Uh, some say it's the perfect, that it's the return of Christ, that Jesus is himself the perfect. And though Christ is perfect, the grammar in this sentence in the Greek, it's neutral or neuter. It's not written in the masculine. So if it was Jesus, they would have written it in a masculine form. So we can't just say that it's just Jesus himself, although it sounds really weird to ever say just Jesus, right? So what is it? Well, let's keep reading and digging into the depths of Scripture and see if it answers this question. Verse 12. For now, in our childlike state, we see in a mirror dimly. But then, then, I'm talking about time, aren't we? When the perfect comes, then face to face. Face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, fully, even as I have been fully known. Remember, God's not still learning about you. <laughs> he knows us fully in all eternity. Listen to 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. Amazing how the Apostle John and the Apostle Paul agreed with each other, inspired by the Holy Spirit, yes? We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, timing, when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Christians, when we see Jesus face to face, we will be made to be like Christ. We will know him fully. No more mysteries. No more prophecy needed. We will be in the presence of Jesus. So can we say the perfect? Is, is the church perfectly sanctified? Well, it will be then. Is it, is it Jesus' return? Well, it's when that happens. It's the time of, of the eternal state. Does that make sense? When that all comes to pass, everything will be made perfect. The Corinthians at that time, they made their mirrors with polished brass. Polished brass. And you can see yourself in that mirror. You can learn things about your appearance in that mirror. You might be able to pluck that food out of your tooth or something like that. But you can't see everything. We would see ourselves dimly. It's not as good as the real thing. 
And so in the meantime, we search for and we delight in the treasure of knowing Jesus in his word, and we long for the day when that treasure, our inheritance and prize, Jesus Christ himself, is standing right before our eyes. No more looking into the mirror dimly, seeing the real thing. And realize we we can get lost in thinking about that. Lost in thinking about that day. But in this context, in this passage, Paul, Paul is contrasting the way the Corinthian believers were viewing their spiritual gifts with the way they will view things when they're standing face to face with Jesus. And when we think about it that way, thinking that I'm superior to other Christians because I can do this cool trick or get a couple of claps from that crowd. It seems a little childish, doesn't it? The weight and the glory of seeing Jesus, being fully known, fully knowing him, and by the way, being fully known and knowing he has not counted my sin against me. What that ought to make us do is want to spend our energies using whatever gifts God has given us to help people, to point them to Christ, to see people saved, to see people growing and changing, to glorify God with everything we have. Will we wish that we did any less when we see Jesus face to face? Will we regret any of the blood, sweat, and tears that were shed when we stand before our crucified and risen Lord? I think our hesitancies, our, our comparison games, our, our shyness, or our excuses, or our arguments with one another, maybe our exasperation over lost people simply acting like lost people who need to hear the truth. Whatever else you can think of that slows the ministry of the church down, that occupies our minds, all of it will probably feel pretty childish to us in that day. And let's get rid of the word probably. It'll feel childish to us in that day. We have been called and commanded to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, and to love our neighbor as our self. And God loves us because we haven't done that, have we? And yet, we can stand before him righteous. And he calls us to it. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. I just want to kind of finish with this. I'm not going to preach a separate passage, but knowing that next week we're going to look into this definition of love um, as beautifully written, you can almost tell when we read it, it was going into poetry mode, couldn't you? Um, like Paul wrote that separately and inserted it in the midst of this argument. We're going to get there next week, but let's this week think about the embodiment of love. Love defined through a person and his act. His acts. So 1 John chapter 4, I'm going to start reading in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. 
and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction of the wrath of God for our sins. Remember that. God did not look forward into the corridors of history and see how amazing we were going to be and clamor for us and try to think of a way to woo us. God saw us in our desperation and in our sin and chose to love us and redeem us. Beloved, if God so loved us, if he loved us like that, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. People see God in us when they see us loving. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us the Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may be may have confidence for the day of judgment. <laughs> because as he is, so also are we in this world. When we see love transforming us, and we see love pouring out of our hearts, it gives us encouragement and hope and longing for that day. Because we know God's done something in us and is doing things through us. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. How did Christ endure and make it to the cross? He looked to the joy that was set before him in his love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, who he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We love because he first loved us. So so let's think about this. All-powerful, all-holy, all-righteous, just God, creator God, speaks the universe into existence and makes us. We are created beings, and he made us to be in his image. And Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, are in the garden. They have perfect relationship, perfect fellowship with God, perfect in their innocence. And they have this temptation, and they say to themselves, and Adam lets Eve take the fall, right? I want to be my own God. I want to decide what I want to do. I want to discern and know and determine good and evil. And she and he take themselves out from under the authority of God. They become sinners. And everyone following in Adam all die. Sometimes we think of it like there's this neutral pile of people. There's a neutral pile of people and and some of them choose God and some of them choose sin and death and hell. And no, the day you sinned, You did what you were born to do in the curse, in sin. And so if there's a pile of people anywhere, there's a pile of people who've chosen to reject God. And from that, God has shed his love on us. And he sends the only one who could be a a suitable sacrifice, perfect in righteousness, his own son, Christ. Christ humbles himself takes on flesh and lives in this world under the curse that he created, but not the way it is now. And he lives a perfect and sinless life 
is sinned against by his own creation. And he goes all the way to the cross. And remember, it wasn't the cross itself that was the greatest problem, the greatest suffering. It was the wrath of God poured out on him because of our sin. And all the wrath that we deserve is poured out and absorbed in Jesus the Christ. It is finished. And because of Christ's loving act, because of God's proactive loving grace, we, his children, can say, I am a child of God. I have been forgiven. I have been counted as righteous. I have eternal life to live. I'm going to be face to face with Christ and not suffer judgment. It's already been done. That is love. God loved us while we were yet sinners. And we see God and we see the love of Christ in the gospel. And what do we do in response? Well, if we've become a Christian, a little Christ, guess what we're going to look like? Guess what's going to start pouring out of our hearts as we dig into the depths of the knowledge of God and learn of his great love and fill our hearts with that great love? Guess what's going to come out of us? Love. Love. So Christians, church, look to Christ. See his love. Enjoy and delight in the grace of God. And be changed and grow and mature and love one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. You are the holy, all-powerful, mighty God. And you are love. God, we thank you for your great gift to us through Christ. And pray, Lord, that um, even in this next week, when we go home today, when we go to bed tonight, when we wake up tomorrow, when we spend our evening, when we our lunch breaks, God, may we be too enamored with how amazing you are to be pulled away uh, by the temporary fickleness of this world. And may we be a shining light, salt, a city set on a hill that pours out and imitates the love that you've given to us. May people see it and be saved. I pray, Lord, that if there is if there's someone here today who heard this message and heard of your love for us, heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord, that you would bring repentance, that that soul would confess their sin and put their faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. And I pray, Lord, that we, your people, would live as a people redeemed, live as a people rescued, live as a people being sanctified and looking forward to your return. And Lord, we long for the day. May we long for it in joy. And I pray all of this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen.